0: I'm hmm. Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Senko.
1: I'm Catherine Macpherson. Hello, I'm Jonathan Maguire. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Smith from the Wallery. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gershon and Yerushim, and not the Footy Show. Yep. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not the Footy Show. Our first for 2023. Happy New Year to everybody. And uh, let's hope it's a fantastic year in sport. We've got another great guest lined up for you. Uh, Andrew Ross is our guest, and he's talking about a municipal surf park. And uh, that is something a little bit different. But uh, for all you surfers, hopefully you will enjoy that. But I'm Ashley Morrison. I'm John Lee. Happy New Year, John.
2: And to you. First one back, eh?
1: It is indeed.
2: Ooh, lots has been happening.
1: Lots and lotses. There has. Are you going to talk about that first, or do you want me to no, go first?
2: No, you go, you go first.
1: Okay, well, as we know, there's been the uh, Hockey World Cup taking place, and India, the host nation, bowed out in the crossover games. Now, as you can imagine, there are a lot of very, very passionate Indian hockey fans out there, and uh, they were very disappointed. Rapindapal Singh came out saying, look, don't blame the players. They'll be hurting as much as anybody. But the interesting thing... <laughs> Well, I think he had a point to a degree. I mean, the players would be hurting really badly. But the thing that I found interesting, there were a few posts I saw where people turned on the media in India and they were saying, this is your fault in that you haven't criticised the way the selection's been done. You haven't criticised the, the coaching staff. You haven't criticised the change in captaincy. But the thing is, John, as much as you think, OK, there's everyone's pointing fingers at everybody trying to blame everybody, but the media now, if you look at it, and that, and I think that was, to some of the media in India, that was very fair criticism. Because a lot of the media, not just in India, but here and around the world, have become sycophants. You know, and they just basically want to be pals with everybody. They want to get the free ticket to the end-of-season dinner, to all these other things. And, and it's become ridiculous that a lot of the sports media are not asking coaches key questions. They're not getting the stories that you and I... Want to know about. And and I find it really frustrating. But what has happened, of course, is if you do ask those questions, you get penalised now. So, you know, you had Mark Schwartzer asking the question at the FIFA World Cup about why are we paying so much money when so much money from the government has been paid into football? for junior kids to play football, and he got cut off. They wouldn't let him ask that question. He actually got cut off. Now, that, to me, is disgraceful, but it's happening all the time. And what you get is you get threatened that you won't... You're suddenly taken off a mailing list. You're suddenly not invited, or your accreditation... You can't get accreditation for a tournament. I know several responsible media people who work for big organisations that have and have covered events for a number of years, have then been rejected on their media accreditation because they've been critical of people at the top or they've asked questions of the administration that the administration doesn't like. And, I mean, just one last thing on this as well. But you also have, in this town, as we know, we have probably the worst local newspaper there ever is in anywhere in the world – But, and I don't know why anyone would buy it. Certainly why they wouldn't subscribe to it. Eagles fans do. Oh, yeah. Well, it is really, I suppose, a club magazine, isn't it?
2: It's a weekly, it's a daily club newsletter.
1: But but you have in that, and I mean, I don't know why anybody that works there would actually want to put it on their resume that they work (laughs) there, because certainly if it was on theirs, I wouldn't give them a job. But anyway, but you have sports that send in, because that's how they want now. If you've got a story, send it in to us. But they don't even change it. They run it verbatim. I actually looked at a website, went through it, word for word, and yet one of their journalists put his name at the top of it as his story. And you go, yet it was written by the local sport. And that shows the caliber of what's going on in the media. So I think some criticism is not happening because people, I think a lot of sports now see the media as being their marketing tool or there for propaganda.
2: Familiarity and contempt are those oh, words you put well, into same sense? Well,
1: You might remember going back a long time, I think we're going back, when I went to the World Cup in Germany in 2006, I could not believe that there were members of the Australian media covering the World Cup, turning up to games, wearing soccer shirts. Okay. Now, I'd never seen that before in any sport until that time. And I was absolutely appalled by it because that you're not a fan when you're working in that. Yeah, you may want to see the team win because you come from that country. And, you know, Martin Tyler, the famous commentator, said he's always – someone said, how are you going to feel if England win the World Cup? He goes, well, it hasn't happened yet. So he goes, I've not been in that position. But, I mean, and there are times where it is – you try not to be biased as a commentator or, or a journalist or whatever. But you understandably want to see your team win. But you don't wear the shirt when you're there in a work capacity. Socks, oh, you can wear them if you want. Yeah, Who's going to see them? Yeah. Well, um, I I
2: signed up for the FIH newsletter or their their mailing list. I got one email,
1: one, and then gone. Then
2: gone. Obviously, something's wrong with my email.
1: Must be. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, the, the best thing is when you actually question. Them. So I've I've been taking off a few sports. <laughs> email, uh, listen. Then I said, I've actually gone back to myself. I think there's something wrong with your system and they put me back on.
2: Uh, you mentioned, uh, the media in India going after. Before the World Cup, there was a really interesting article with their coach. And, um, he talked about the pressure of performing at home. Yep. And how sometimes it works against you. Yeah. And sometimes it works against you. And I think it was just, that classically, and after the, the their elimination game, he came out and said, "We need a mental coach," which I thought was actually a prerequisite for all Indian coaches—a little bit of mental. <laughs> but um, interesting comments because those guys live basically all together. Yep they they train as a squad. They train like a club. International teams are not the traditional international are not international hockey teams are not like other sports international teams. They they are like a club team.
1: So is the cricket now.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you,
1: you've got some players who have not played for their state or certainly county cricket. I think it was Wokes hasn't played for his county for four years. Yeah. I mean, that to me is ludicrous.
2: So international coaching in our sport, in hockey, is not like it is international coaching in other sports. You've had these people for a long time. Yeah. I would have thought that was self-evident. Before losing a crossover final at a World Cup. And I would
1: have thought you would have worked out in that time which players needed mental coaching.
2: Or or maybe it was just a fact that um, no one was listening and nothing was done. And he's been saying it for ages. Yeah, may well be. Which would would not be surprising.
1: But also I think, John, you you see this and I don't want to say it's a racist thing, but it's a stigma that seems to be attached to Asian teams. That they're not mentally tough, which I don't actually agree with because I think if you look at Japanese teams, Korean teams, they tend to be very strong mentally.
2: Yeah, I don't, I'm um, mentally tough.
1: Yeah, I mean, how do you equate that?
2: And, and of course when you use terms like mental health, which is just such an all encompassing term that I'm not sure what it really means anymore. Um, look, that, that's what makes good players great is the ability to think themselves through what they're doing and maybe maybe it, it's not something that can actually be taught
1: yeah i i think it can be you can be helped to find ways to to focus better yeah uh, i mean there's a prime example sandy gordon you know who used, we've had on this show several times uh sports psychologists work with the australian cricket team and a number of other big sporting organisations and I remember him telling me actually specifically with a hockey player and I can't remember who was the coach kept getting carded in every game. And the coach said, You gotta we've got to sort this out because we cannot afford to have you off the field to play every single game and so he spent time with Sandy Gordon and I thought this was actually I hope Sandy doesn't mind me telling this story, but I'm not going to say who the player was. But he he said to him, he said, because what would happen is other teams realised when, when they fouled him, he would react. So then he'd react and he'd get simbinned and whatever. So they were deliberately niggling him to get the reaction so that he got a card. And he, he said, what we had to do in that case was change the way he his behaviours. And he goes, so that what they worked on was instead of him reacting, they coached him to say or trained him to say in his head, Whenever a foul happened, the first thing he had to think is where's the ball, so find the ball, get a play on quickly while they're trying to stir him up, and this player went on and actually had a very good career. Well,
2: that's an interesting way to look at it, and I, I'm not. I have a feeling that a lot of the time, um, that mental toughness we talk about is actually comes from doing stuff off the field and away from the field, as a, as opposed to so that. When you get on the field, the idea that people are going to buffet you and niggle you doesn't bother you. Yep. So, why is this aggression being taken into the game by this person? Is there are there things going on outside? And often
1: there are that we don't know about. Exactly. And and, well, I mean, I, I, I can tell you again, it's it's a similar kind of thing. Like you know, I'm not the tallest guy in the world, so you can imagine when I was at school, I was always one of the smallest. So back in those days, who'd they pick on? The smallest guy. The dwarf. Yeah. I mean, I got beaten my first day by the headmaster because I punched James Hartland (laughs) with the guy. Anyway, and uh, I was the youngest boy in the school, probably the smallest. And I suddenly was getting always in trouble for fighting because my view was don't pick up. I had to fight back. And then I remember I had one teacher just said to me and came up and said, stop using your fists. Start using your mouth. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And they taught me that it was far better or you were getting less trouble <laughs> by actually putting someone down verbally than by using your fists. And it was a fantastic lesson to learn as about, what was I, 12? Yeah. And it probably got kept me out of a lot of trouble later in life. Well, you were scallywag, we. I got beaten by the headmaster a lot of times for fighting. I've actually got a school report that says as of next term, Ashley will be taking up judo so that we can channel his natural aggression. Oh. Well, John, the other other thing I just wanted as we wrap up sort of more or less talking about hockey was I received a letter that was sent by email to the hockey paper and Hockey World News. And I'm going to share it with you because we don't actually print letters on Not The Footy Show's blog. And so I said to the person that wrote it, which was Ian Gillen, I would read it out on air. And I'm going to read it, and then maybe you can react to it. So it goes, Good morning, all. I'm writing to you in the hope that you will publish this letter. Hopefully the hockey world awakens from its slumbers and unites in taking action to drive the game forward into the modern era. Of course, if they're happy with the present mediocrity, then just stay silent. Watching the Men's World Cup in India, one realizes just how much the FIH has sold the soul of the game. Massive crowds for the India games, but close to empty stadia for other games not involving India. Are the venues simply too large? They certainly look awful on television when half empty. Now the host nation has been knocked out, how much will it affect the crowds and the revenue? Then we have recycling at its very best. The tagline for the World Cup along with the mascot are exactly the same as they were four years ago. This is lazy in the extreme and shows that people simply do not care about the product. The marking department needs to take a good look at themselves seriously. One has to feel sorry for the modern-day officials, as there's been many, as, as has been said by many, the rules are far too often left to their interpretation, and therein lies a major issue. One person's interpretation and culture may differ from another's, so players, coaches, and more importantly, the viewers are totally confused. The rules of the game are a complete mess and the inconsistencies are restricting any chance of the sport expanding into presently not presently non-hockey nations. The game needs to grow globally. This tournament for some reason has fans extremely di- has been extremely disappointing to say the least and has been the worst I've experienced as a concerned hockey follower. Are these officials really the best the game has to offer? Finally, the television product. You would think with the amount of tournaments that have been played over the last 10 years, experiencing the positive and the negative, India would have the highest standards of broadcast. But like the overall standard which has deteriorated beyond belief in the last four years, this has been poor. The camera angle in Rokella is simply too high. One gets vertigo just watching. However, the crux of the issue is the commentary. It is so boring and almost sends me to sleep. Rick Monotone Charlesworth may have some good points to make, but he needs a defibrillator to inject some passion or energy into the broadcast. The other commentators are again lifeless, dull, flat and boring. I know that they hail from these shores and we should be pleased to have British people in the broadcast seat, but not when they are helping kill or are detrimental to the game that we love and are are passionate about. All of these people have been involved in the ill-fated FIH Pro League, which is dying a slow and long death. R.I.P. They are not the total problem, but part of it. The Pro League was meant to be exciting. It was supposed to lift the game to new heights, allowing it to compete with other high-profile sports. The above-mentioned commentators and colleagues stuck in a London studio have had the complete opposite effect on the game and continue to do so. It's like a road accident. The only positive that the sport has at the current time are the players. However, as play becomes homogenized, one wonders for how long their dedication and technical brilliance and enthusiasm will be able to keep the sport afloat. Time to forget India and focus on new and other markets. Time to abandon interpretive rules and try and find a way to make umpires professional. Now is the time to reset, reduce the amount of international hockey and make it something special again. It is also the correct time to take boring commentators, as mentioned previously, off air for good. Leave Mr. Charlesworth and his old-style hockey followers to moan about the game back in Australia or China. It is the modern game and few will understand him, which could be a blessing in disguise. On closing, I don't want to sound negative, but without a voice, the game we love is going down the drain. We would all like to see the game develop as other sports have, without, uh, but without change, unfortunately, it will be doomed. Uh, yours in sport, Ian Gillen. So uh, I know a lot of those points you've raised on the reverse say, stick.
2: Thanks, Ian, for summing up the last five years of <laughs> the reverse stick podcast.
1: But, look, I felt I had to share that because, as I say, he asked me to print it. I had emailed him and yeah. said, look, we don't print that, but I'm just sharing it with everybody there. I'm sure. not going to commentate on the com- a comment on the commentary for obvious reasons.
2: Okay, very, very quickly, I uh, talked about crowds and, the, okay, it's a bit of a joke that it's a, in India again. Second one in a row. Third um, in four. Third in four. And, you know, same mascots and all that sort of stuff. A lot of imagination going on. The, the point about crowds, and I'm not sure I agree with that. Whichever World Cup you go to, wherever, if the home team gets knocked out, guess what happens?
1: Yeah, you but, but slightly s- smaller venues, it doesn't I look mean, so bad.
2: That, that's true, but I, I, I can think of World Cups in a lot of countries that have had poor crowds for games not involving. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's not ideal and I don't know, we need to the sport has to work on that yeah. everywhere, not and just how the they industry. feel them
1: to make it look better. Hundred
2: percent agree. Yeah, exactly. Um the sponsors well, I've been through that a few times. It'd be nice to see a, a true global sponsor for the FIH. Yeah, you're an a global, international company. An international company that actually sells products in some of the countries that are your members, apart from the one that is where yeah. you are. Um the rules Obviously there's gotta be some, the, the overhead rule's gotta be really looked at. When a player can run into the D, lift a ball up into a group of blokes who then all take a swing at the ball, and it, that first goal that England scored against in the last game, in the semi, in the quarterfinal, that should never be allowed, mate. That is waiting for someone to get smashed in the head by a hockey stick. It is waiting to happen.
1: I'm nodding here, everybody.
2: Uh, Anyway, there's lots of rules that need fixing. I'm not going to get into the officials. I have favourites. I have umpires that I don't like at all at this... But... That's what's going to happen and no one's ever going to be happy with umpiring and it's useless. But I do think we,
1: we have to start having interpretive rules. We've got to start Absolutely. protecting our officials. We've got to make it easier for yeah, them. Exactly. Not harder. But also make it easier for the viewers watching so that everybody is clear and everybody yeah. understands.
2: Um, TV product, there's long been complaints about the TV product. Uh, is it terrible, terrible? No, it's not. I think the quality of this, what we're seeing is alright. The quality of the, um, the, the the vision. Actual vision, some is of it. All right. I mean,
1: I, I'm not uh, so sure because <laughs> some of the if, I mean, there was an attack happening when I was watching oh, that, one game, that, that's and direction. then they
2: go to a replay. Yeah, but that's a direction. That's yeah. not the actual image. No, the images the are great. Screen.
1: I don't have a problem with it that. It looks technically but the direction has been a bit oh, awful. Cut,
2: cutting from live action to a shot of the goalie adjusting his helmet. Woohoo! Yeah, I um, know. So there's some stuff to work on there. Not going into the commentary because once again, like officials, you got your favourites, you you've got others that you just can't stand, and it doesn't matter. Uh, pro League, been a lemon since the very beginning yeah, and it's it. sucked the life out of a lot of hockey and it's just turned, once again, it's helped turn national coaches into club coaches. Uh, the players have always been the jewel in our sports crown. It's just amazing that they don't get paid. Yep. Which is a complete joke and you're right, forget India. I've been saying that for a long time, mate. If the one billion people in India can't help, We've spent so much time wondering about that one billion in India, we've forgotten about the six billion in the rest of the world. And it's a
1: long haul back. It is indeed. Let's move on to something a little bit more positive. Hi, I'm Chris Cirello from the Kookaburras, and you're listening to Not the Footy Show. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're starting off the new year with something that's going to be very new. It's going to be the biggest or the largest surf park in the Southern Hemisphere. And it is going to start construction here in Western Australia this year, hopefully the end of this year. And it's been a 10 year vision for our guest, who is Andrew Ross, who is the chairman and chief development manager for Aventure. Andrew Ross, welcome to Not the Footy Show.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Ashley.
1: Well, uh, we caught up a few months back and uh, I thought you had a very interesting story to tell. Here was a man that had worked in the rat race till in his forties and then decided, you know what, I'd rather sort of pursue something else that aligns with my hobbies, which was surfing. Is that a pretty fair assessment?
0: <laughs> Mate, it is a very fair assessment. I, uh, tried to occupy myself with a bunch of different corporate things for a while there. But uh, had the jump to passion uh, after I turned 40. And, yeah, the last 10 years or so, I've been uh, trying to develop surf parks here in Australia and elsewhere. I mean, when you hear of a surf park, you, maybe you can elaborate
1: a little bit about what they actually are and why there's a need for them, I suppose.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, surf parks are a really interesting new uh, recreational amenity feature. Um, brand new industry. I, I kind of commenced in it right at the very uh, beginning point of it uh, when these concepts were just sort of ideas and nothing had been commercialized or or really even prototypes have been developed. Uh, what a surf park is, it's, a, it's an environment that's specifically designed to create surfing waves for surfers. And so in that way, they're quite different to what people might um, know as wave pools. And wave pools are designed to create ocean-like sort of environments, but for bathers. So you've, you've got a bit of a splashing around, a little spilling wave. What we can now produce uh, with the technologies that we have are sort of just over two metre high perfect barrelling waves uh, that run through a lagoon. You can get up to 150 metre long rides, uh, which is about a 16 second ride. For anyone out there who's a surfer, you'll know that that's a quite an extensive ride, particularly here in the context of Perth, where your typical ride is probably two seconds before you get slammed onto the shore. Um and the the technology allows for waves of that sort of magnitude, which is great for expert surfers and for even Olympic-style training, um, all the way down to people who have never touched a surfboard before. You can come out in a really safe, convenient, accessible environment, and you can just accelerate people's learning, people's progression in the sport so quickly in these environments. So it's kind of every something for everyone. And it, it actually solves that problem that surfers have always had, that you're in the hands of Mother Nature. And so what it then means is that we can um, basically get round that and provide perfect waves to people at times and in places that are convenient and suitable for them. I mean, knowing some surfers, they'll say, you're creating an artificial
1: environment and that's never going to match the actual real ocean. Uh, I mean, do you find that or are they actually going, you know what, this is still damn good? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, look, it was a real concern of mine when we first started in this space. You know, I I remember early days back in two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, I'd I'd sit in a darkened room with a cold towel wrapped around my head, just thinking through all of these problems and challenges and trying to develop a commercial model for this new technology that had never been proven, didn't have a market. You know, surfers are You know, we're, we're kind of nomadic people. We, we turn up to places, we do our thing and then we leave. And so there was never a built form environment for surfers, almost like creating a church for surfing. And so a fear I had, as, as you say, that the purists in the surfing world would just completely reject this as being inauthentic and not something that should fit within surfing culture. So, and, and forgive me and for, and for listeners that have sensitive ears, but one of the things that I came into this with was, a key principle was don't fuck surfing. You know what I mean? So uh, everything that we led with was to, in an effort not to do the additive to surfing and not to take anything away or, or dilute it or, or destroy what, for all of us, is essentially a religion. You know, it's something that we very passionately pursue. So uh, what have we found over time, though, is quite interesting. Um, the, the purists who really didn't like the whole concept and were negative about it, all I'd say is, look, just come have a wave come have a surf with us and see what you think. And they turn up, and a lot of them now are the biggest advocates for what we're doing, and there's a a few reasons for that. One is it actually is a pretty authentic surfing environment. You're surrounded by people who are core-type surfers. You use the same equipment. The waves are really high quality, and it just allows you to do things that you can't regularly do in the ocean. And so um, I'm sure... You know, people use the ocean and surfing in the ocean for different reasons, um, you know, whether it's for health and wellness or exercise, catching up with friends, for performance and training. Um, and you can do all of those things in a surf park. I think if it's a pumping six- to eight-foot day down south and you've got dolphins going through the lineup, and the conditions are just right and the wind stops and, you know, you're out there with three or four mates, like, you will never be able to mimic that in a man-made environment. And so from that perspective... Mother Nation and Mother Nature and the ocean is always the pinnacle for us. It always is. We always see ourselves as being supplementary or, or, or or supportive to whatever's happening in the ocean. And in some ways actually, like uh, part of our business model is as soon as you can surf well with us, we want to kick you out of the lagoon. We want to send you down the beach. And get you to learn all of those skills that you can't learn in a lagoon, such as, you know, duck diving and reading the waves and when sets and things arrive and navigating yourself through the lineup and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there's there's a really, it's been really fascinating for me, you know, being in the industry the last 10 years, right from the very beginning, just to see that evolution and that the feelings that people have had about surf parks and really to see a, like a real adoption of it as a legitimate and genuine part of surfing going forward. One of the
1: interesting things I saw in the video that you shared was that that some of the top sort of competitive surfers found these artificial environments really useful for them to actually perfect some of their moves because they could do them in this safe environment and then go out into the sea and do it. And so it was almost like a cricketer going in the nets to perfect a a trick shot. You know, Uh, I thought it was really interesting
0: yeah absolutely and that, and I think what we've found over time is um that uh acceptance by the pro level surfers uh that we're all familiar with um has really created like an aspirational element for everyone else the the mere mortals amongst us as well like if it's good enough for the pros and it's it's going to be good enough for me you know I want to train the same way that john john trains or or you know any of those sort of or Jack Robinson or any of those sorts of guys and girls um so yeah, what we've found is that the evolution of surfing and advancements are now above the lip. And so there's a lot of aerial style maneuvers, a lot of gymnastic style maneuvers that surfers are doing and actually incorporating a lot of the skate maneuvers uh, that you see in, in uh, skate bowls and or maybe half pipes that you see for snowboarding. That's now sort of feeding back into surfing. Surfing was the original board sport. It, it bred all these other sports like skating and snowboarding like and now. Uh, advancements in those sports are kind of feeding back into surfing, which is really interesting. So the the ability to kind of practice these aerial manoeuvres in the ocean is actually really limited. You, you can't find those ramps and you can't find the right conditions often. And so for us to be able to just dial up the airwave and say, right, do you want it a little bit bigger? Do you want it to break a little differently? Do you want a softer landing? Do you want the the wedge to hit you in a slightly different angle? And we can do that. And you can do that – where in you know, the surf park we're producing um up to a thousand waves per hour. So it's uh it's pretty remarkable. And we can do that, you know, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. So it just in terms of a, a platform for training for people, it's it's pretty remarkable. Um obviously it's not gonna if you're wanting to drop in see the right or Waimea or Jaws or something like that, which is twenty to fifty feet, then you know <laughs> that we're probably not the right training environment, but you know, for everything else uh, in terms of a smaller wave performance surfing, then there's a lot to be said for the surf parks as part of that. How many different types of wave are you able to create? Yeah, the um, we use a technology called Wave Garden, uh, and Wave Garden is the most advanced and the greatest deployed technology surf park technology in the world. Um, the Wave Garden guys are all surfers. There's like 65 of them. I think most of them engineers, but they all surf and uh, they've developed, I think it's around 30 or 35 different waves in their wave menu, and it's it's pretty remarkable. You sit there in front of this big flat-screen panel looking out of the lagoon, and you've almost got like a Spotify playlist in front of you, <laughs> and you, you you select the wave type, you select how many waves you want in a set, you select the break you want, the time break you want between sets, and then you just hit the go button, and like literally three seconds later, the machine starts whirring Very softly, and these big waves just start ripping out of the uh, ripping out of the lagoon. It's just it's absolutely amazing.
1: Now, I mean, you can hear your enthusiasm in your voice, but the the one thing I think is, I mean, obviously there's a a new surf park going to be built here in Western Australia. I think it's the largest in the Southern Hemisphere, if I'm correct. But you said you've been involved in this for ten years. It
0: hasn't all been plain sailing, has it? <laughs> no, I know. We've, we've had a few bumps and scratches and knocked knees and bloody elbows as we've gone through, uh, particularly here in Perth. And I don't know what's so particular about Perth. Um, maybe it's that kind of analogy of being a big country town or something. But, um, yeah, we, we, uh, had a difficult time at trying to get a park up in, um, Alfred Cove early, early days. And, um, uh, that would have been a really great, a location, I think, right on the Swan foreshore, 26 hectare major sports reserve that operated as continuously as a sports reserve for 60 odd years at that point. And we were just replacing a couple of green fields with blue fields and, and making the sports offering maybe a bit more relevant to the community. But um, it was decided that was probably not the best place for it to go. And uh, we worked really strongly with the, with the government and identified uh, this new site uh, that we're working on down in Coburn immediately adjacent to the Coburn train station and to the freeway uh, just across the road from the Dockers and the Coburn Arc, the, the big uh, aquatic and recreation centre. And um, we've we now got a site which is much larger and actually allows us to do a whole variety of different things, which we weren't able to do in the Melbourne development that I was involved in. Um, and so it means that, yes, this, this park is going to be the largest in Australia in terms of the wave generator and the like. But it also the largest in the southern hemisphere. So it's, it's truly really exciting. And to be honest, as a Perth hometown boy, um, and this is the park I'm going to surf the most, then there's a lot of vested interest here and self interest to make sure it's absolutely the best. At least
1: you're honest. Um, I mean, John, <laughs> John, who's my co-host on this show, I know one of the things he was saying he was concerned about and he lives down that way is the environmental impact. Obviously water at the moment we're told is, you know, in short supply and we've got to be, much more cautious with it. What's the situation with the water? Is it recycled water? Well, how does that mm. work?
0: Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess a couple of starting comments. Uh, as surfers, we have a deep green core when it comes to environmental uh, sustainability and, and environmental conservation. So every, we have a detailed sustainability charter around our business. And every decision that we make from a development perspective and other perspective is influenced by a consideration of uh, are we stepping lightly enough on the planet? So that's, that's sort of the first starting point. Second point is around the environmental impacts uh, that this project uh, will have. Um, one of the reasons the state government selected the site that we're going to was because it actually minimises any potential environmental uh, impacts. Um, there is a bit of clearing that we have to do, um, but we've already um, offered an offset uh, as as part of the process in discussion with the EPA and also the Federal Department of Environment, um, where there's three hectares of some Banksia trees that we need to clear. We're offering uh, 18 hectares of Banksia, which will be then investing in the state to pre- be preserved as nature reserve. Um, there's other things like there's about 250 Balga trees, so grass trees on the site. And what we're going to be doing is uh, removing them, storing them, and then reintroducing them back into the landscape. So, uh, which is important from a Aboriginal cultural perspective because the, the providence of those plants are actually quite important. It's, it's, um, not great to be bringing plants from other places and replanting them, uh, in, in those environments. Um, to, to your point about water, yes, we do use a fair bit of water, um, but it needs to be seen in context. So, uh the lagoon uh is about 26 megalitres of water in volume and we'll lose um probably about that maybe a bit more per annum but which sounds like a lot but it's it's probably about the equivalent of the amount of water that's used to irrigate three holes on a golf course so when you sort of place it in that sort of context we will have you know the the busiest golf course in Australia is Wembley that has about 100,000 rounds or 150,000 rounds a year or something Um, we'll have more than a million people through our facility um, over a a year. And we're using significantly less water than any of those types of um, sporting uh, and entertainment sort of venues. So I guess there's always a balance that needs to be struck and you need to think about, is this a, a valuable and useful use of these resources and what other benefits are you getting from them? And so, you know, on the environmental side is is one part of it, but we also think about the social and inclusion um, part of our business where we provide opportunities for people of different abilities. Uh, we provide opportunities for um, Indigenous youth to get involved and, and get involved in the sport and uh, also create training opportunities and the like. So there's the, all these things playing our mind really strongly, actually, uh, and uh, running that sort of balance in our minds as to, uh, what we're using and are we using it as effectively as we can.
1: Oh, that's fantastic, especially the context of the golf clubs. But when the park opens, I mean, is there a limit to how many people can be on the water at one time? Because I'm thinking if you suddenly got it swarming with people, we know what surf rage is like out in the
0: ocean. It's going to be a pretty unpleasant place. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. It's, it's funny. Like I'm sure everyone's seen a couple of those memes or videos that go around showing the wave pools. I think they're in China somewhere. And you see it just completely dotted like with, uh, you know, not, not a single square centimeter of water left. It's just filled with like humans. Um, it's, it's not like that. So the lagoon, although it's the size of an AFL football oval, so it's 2.1, 2.2 hectares. Um, it has a maximum capacity of about 80 people in it, uh, per hour. Um, so it's, it's regulated from that perspective. And so, uh, it means that the environment is safe, uh, for people. We have four different zones in the lagoon that everyone's sort of spread between. Um, and it also means people get a, a large number of waves uh, per session as well. So, um, that's a way for us to regulate it. Also, we, um, we run different sessions with different wave types. So there's a menu throughout the day. Which, um, uh, you know, if you want to surf intermediate waves or advanced waves or beginner waves, you can, you can come at different times of the day and surf those.
1: And presumably you're going to have to have surf life saving there as well, I would think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, lifeguarding is a, a really strong com- component of our business. You know, that's the safety part of it. Um, so we have, uh, surf trained lifeguards. Uh, there's normally five, uh, on, um, at, at any one time. And that includes two, uh, surf guides out in the water so you've got some of our staff out there paddling around and just helping people and giving them advice and you know just making sure everyone's having a good time and everyone's safe. Well Andrew you said it's been a 10-year journey I mean the
1: start of this project I believe construction is going to start in 2023 I mean is the end
0: in sight and and how does it (laughs)
1: fall after such a journey?
0: Yeah I I don't want to I'm sort of tapping my own head now and just knock on wood but um uh, uh, yeah, look, it's, it's looking really positive at the moment. We've, we've found a great partner in the city of Coburn. They've been incredibly uh, supportive of getting this $90 million piece of infrastructure into their community. Um, the state government's been incredibly supportive as well um, and, and been a delight and pleasure to deal with. Uh, we've got uh, planning consent for the, uh, for the project hopefully being achieved in February. So we should have our development application approved then. Uh, we're hoping to receive uh, clearance on our environmental approvals in the in the coming weeks. Uh, and it means that opens up the pathway for us to get onto site and start construction sometime early in the second half of this year. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed, uh, we'll be there and then, you know, we'll build the lagoon and hopefully first waves will be sometime in early, say, 2025, which is an incredibly exciting time. I remember first waves in Melbourne. It was just like a pinnacle moment so much fun and is that going to be a big event with some big world names coming or is that too far ahead to even think of it well i think yeah we did something similar first waves in in melbourne it was a little bit low-key and under the radar but we had um, about half a dozen uh world surfing uh pros there and and then a bunch of family and friends and we just had an amazing day uh, so, um, but there, there'll be a lot of different activities around first waves for us. You know, we'll, we'll start marketing memberships to people here in Perth in the not too distant future. And there's opportunities there for people to get in and sample those first waves before we open, um, and the like. And, you know, one of the things for us is, is about creating an incredible community of, of surfers and non-surfers around the facility who can use all the different pieces of amenity that we've got, you know, this lagoon, but, There's going to be a really big, um, lean into health and wellness and fitness and training. Uh, there's also uh, a big, uh, restaurant and, um, other cafes and, and also a beach club. Like there's going to be a hundred and I think it's like 120, 130 person beach club that we're building. Um, so something kind of similar, I guess, to like fins in Bali or, or something like that. Uh, which, you know, we don't have anything like that really in Perth. I guess you got the pool at Crown at the, at the hotel, but, um, You know, to have that sort of environment here in Perth and the climate that we've got and everything else, I think it's going to be amazing. And the last thing we're going to have is a three and a half thousand square metre events lawn. So it means we can have events up to three thousand people there, like music events and like. And I think that's going to be a really, uh, really, really interesting addition uh, to the surfboard.
1: No, I agree. Having seen the plans and the, the sort of visuals, it looks amazing. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the very best that this dream is finally becoming a reality. And, of course, if anyone's got any interest from overseas that wants to talk to you, they just contact you, I
0: presume, through your company, Aventure. That's exactly right. Yeah, just reach out to us um, through our info at, at Aventure. And, um, yeah, we'd be delighted to speak to you.
1: Well, Andrew, thanks very much for your time and all the very best in what's coming in the next year and a half.
0: Thanks so much, Ashley. Great talking to you. Hi, I'm Gordon Banks, and
2: I'm listening to Not The Footy Show.
1: Well, John, that was Andrew Ross from Aventure. And if people want to get in touch with the company, their website, I'll spell it for you. So it's A-V-E-N-T-W-R.com, com. And uh, as we said, you know, 10 years he's been trying to get this off the ground. And I think it's pretty exciting. And, you know, obviously I was surprised with the environmental thing that the water used is actually going to be just the same as three holes on a golf course over an annual year. I mean, that was amazing. I thought it would use a lot more than that.
2: Well, it says a lot about golf courses, doesn't it?
1: It sure does, not we won't go into hockey pitches.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, they're going to be waterless. They're just going to turn the tap off.
1: But I think the amazing thing is, is again, is, is how this is going to work and the fact that you can create. I think you said it was, it's – well, I read it was on the website. It was over 25 different wave types um, that you can learn. It's pretty ingenious, really. It, it, it is it? incredible, yeah, yeah, the technology. And, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the visuals of it, John. It is amazing. Like They've got a, a, a park that they're going to be able to hold concerts in. They've also got accommodation that's going to be there so you can actually stay there. And, and it looks amazing. Uh, and I think it's going to be really interesting. I hope it. I hope it is a really big success. The one thing, because uh, again, I was like, well, what's the reaction from the true surfies? You like to get out? Oh, there?
2: they'll come around to it if they don't.
1: Yeah, but he, he, as he said, the thing was, he's, there's been a lot of consultation with them. But the thing is, of course, you've got to wait for the right weather to be able to go out in the ocean. Whereas here now, you can hire it, or and you can choose what waves and the height and etc. And so they're going to be able to still do what they want to do. They
2: will always remain a purity about ah. beach surfing or reef or whatever. You know, yeah, but always. Let's just go down and catch a few waves and we'll have a, have a beer afterwards. And
1: Yeah. You know. It's going to be a nightmare, though, trying to get hold of a tradie, isn't it? Because they're all going to be down <laughs> there.
2: <laughs> Probably. Seriously, I look, we I had when, I,
1: when I lived in a, an, a, a block of units, the guy that was our tradie there, it was you'd ask him to come and do something and he wouldn't turn up and go, oh, sorry, surf was up, mate. <laughs> so It was like, and that's why I'm going from experience. If the surf was up, we never saw him. Hey, Nothing hey,
2: got done. You're going to get down there and give it a try. Go
1: he's on. invited me to down that's there it. to have a go, and I was saying I've only ever tried surfing once. I managed to get on my knees and think about. I convinced this, t- well, he's about ten or eleven yeah. year old who was laughing at me. I said, instead of laughing, try and help me here. And so he did say, but yeah, Andrew said he'll get me down there and try and get me up on the board. I would definitely give it a go. Yeah. They don't pop
2: ollies on surfboards, do they, mate?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Take you back that one?
1: It sure does.
2: <laughs> now, good luck to him. I'll be really interested to see the project when it's completed and get down there.
1: Yeah. So what do you want to yabber about?
2: Look, I've got a few little tiny things because a lot's been happening over, over the, Christmas break, a lot of sports, just little tiny things. First up, I heard uh, during the the World Cup the FFA leader interviewed on radio. He's talking about our national team. And he consistently referred to them as the Subway Socceroos. (sighs) Who do the Socceroos represent? Do they represent us as a nation or are they actually... An arm of Subway International. What do? That's what irritates me so much about.
1: Look, the uh, sponsorship
2: uh, yeah. of national... I get why we have, we need, and we but you, need to them. Me, but to
1: me, you should never. Your national team should never be allowed to be done that to. The yes, Subway they, can, they, they can. wear the logo on the shirt, but you yeah. should never sell a naming rights like that. To me, that is sacrilegious.
2: It just. And it 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 almost turned like it did turn me off yeah subway so they're not actually my team as an Australian they're subways team. that's what it sounds an like American about. company. yeah and I know that's no know, I agree with you I'm just what a irritating. Test cricket oh my god I'm uh, it's true oh, there's problems which is really really sad but there's big problems. I yeah. mean the gap between the top couple and everybody else is vast.
1: But are you surprised when, when the cricketing world allowed India, England and Australia to take control of the whole game? They were only ever going to feather their own nests. And to hell with the rest of the world. They're just going to make the money and they don't care about anybody. And that's the sad, sad thing about it. And, I mean, if to me, if I was the other nations, I'd say, well, let's all just forget we won't play you guys. We'll just play each other and try and build ourselves up.
2: Yeah. Um, it... it South Africa
1: was so poor. I've never seen South African team. But they also looked lifeless, like uh, Kagiso Rabida, the, the opening bowl. I mean, he just seemed to have no fire in him, no aggression. They looked like they didn't want to be here. Yeah, exactly.
2: That's what it looked like. And uh, the West Indians, no one really expected terribly much from them. But it yeah. was a thorough, maybe it's just the thoroughly disappointing nature of the Test cricket summer. Because we all look forward to it. Yeah. And it was bang, bang, done and dusted. It was over almost before it began. Remember when we used to have a summer of, of yeah. test cricket? And it was fantastic. Now, obviously, these things... But have to also, how much of it, Johnny, how stuff.
1: much of it is the fact that now as well, we've brought the boundaries in, we've got these bats now that they can hit it for two miles if they really want to. And the wickets, I'm sorry, I, I look at the wickets and they're just made for batsmen. I mean, there there is nothing in it for the bowlers, hardly at all.
2: Well, okay, let's talk about T20 cricket because... I don't watch it. No Okay.
1: Well you can talk about it. There, there's,
2: there's a, see, T20 cricket's changed the dynamic of the game, right? It used to be the, the bowler had to go after the batsman. Yep, You know, batsmen can stand there and leave stuff. They didn't care. Oh, I'm not touching that ball. I'm not yep. going... Now, it's gone the other way around. The batsman has to go after the bowlers now. And um, we're seeing guys just bowl absolute rubbish and the, they get wickets
1: because that's the nature of what T20 is and they're,
2: they're not that good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've said for a long time... Look, and I I'm talking
2: about guys like Andrew Ty and Sean Abbott, the guys that really are on top of their game as far as being bowlers go because they don't try and fall for that stuff. But there's a lot of guys just bowling absolute tripe. And because the batsman has to go after them,
1: they're getting that. But but some of that, John, and I've said this for a long time, is because the coaches today literally tell the bowlers, put the ball between your seam, run in and just try and bowl as quick as you can. Just put it on the spot. Whereas the bowlers aren't thinking half the time. They're not varying their position on the crease. They're not bowling from a wider angle, some of them. If you listen to the coverage,
2: the the way they they talk about what... What do, when they cross? Yeah. The, hearing the players speak on the on the ground now, um, which is I think has opened up my eyes to Aaron Finch. He's a bloody good cricketer, that bloke, and his form in the T Twenty has shown the way he's gone about what he what he does. He's a very smart cricketer, and listening to him giving instructions to bowlers has been really really interesting. But they still just bowl cherries up there, and the idea is that the batsman's going to hit us a catch in in. A lot of the balls that takes wickets in T20 would never have been touched in a test game. The batsman just would have left it. Oh, don't have to hit that. I'm only going to hit it down that bloke's throat. Now the batsman has to go, I'm going to try and miss that. You know. Don't know how we got onto that. We did. Dwight York. (laughs) What a legend. Has ever a truer word been spoken in a changing room than the words that came out of Dwight's mouth?
1: about the A-League pub
2: team? The pub team in the... Who would have thought it? Um, now, it appears as though Dwight might have been on his way out of the club
1: before that little spray. Yeah, I think clearly he wasn't happy with the way things were being run or the lack of professionalism, it sounds like. And if, you know, he was indeed fired, which is supposedly what happened, and he ends up at Sydney FC, which is the rumour going around that he is going to get that job... I just think, what a clever guy. So he comes out with a comment that the club are going to hate because it embarrasses them. So they fire him, so they have to pay out his contract, and then he's going to take another well, job. In, in fairness, he didn't come out and
2: say that. He he said it in the change room.
1: Yeah, but he, he embarrassed the club because it came out. You know you know what it's like now. Someone has probably had their mobile phone filming it because oh, they're yeah. everywhere. But
2: that that's still not Dwight coming out and saying yeah. it publicly. And let's face it, He's probably right. Dwight did know a thing or two about um getting After up to hours activities, and, yeah. And uh, I made the comment to you before that one thing that, that one thing that coaches hate the most is usually the thing that they were doing when they were. And maybe that's a and it, it could be the right call. How's the team gone this season? Remember, this is a guy yeah. that's played elite level football, and maybe he's absolutely right. And and. The only way to get it through is to say some harsh words. You're a pub team. Your attitude is that of a pub team.
1: I think, again, he would have been frustrated, a bit like your interview on in the reverse stick with Alison Annan. You know, he was a great player, and suddenly he's having to try and pull up players that are certainly never going to play at the level that he did. And that can be really hard and frustrating for a coach.
2: Yeah. I, I get the feeling that he's, he might actually be across that, but there's... There's things that you can do as a player that don't require you being a great
1: player. Yeah, I mean, I remember Lou Macari, the great Man United player as well, who came to Swindon and he was player coach initially. And he came around and he said he was trying to get players to do stuff. And he said, I suddenly realised that there was a reason that they were in the second division. Because, you know, they were never going to play at that level. So what he actually focused on was made them the fittest team they were. So that they would just run over teams in the last 10 minutes. And when we won promotion that year with a record number of points, you know, it was phenomenal. The amount of games that the club won in the last 10 minutes.
2: Oh, fitness has always been the key to winning teams. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: why I haven't won anything for a while.
2: <laughs> oh, and one more before we go. A, a recent one. Peter Bowl. Mm. Hmm. Cause it doesn't look good for him just off the top, from what we know, yeah. we know very little, but when people start talking about injectables,
1: yeah. as opposed to just eating a bit of bad steak, or... yeah, look, I, I think, I, I just want to hold off until we find because there's, there's a lot of things about this that seem a bit strange, I think.
2: Um, for getting him aside, a lot of the comments I, I've heard have been like, oh, I can't imagine why a sports person with so much in front of him, blah, 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 And it's like, oh, no, I think you're you're missing the point. I can completely understand why I'm not saying Peter nothing to do with Peter Bowl, but we we've spoken yep. before about, you know, the studies where Olympic athletes have said I'd trade it all yeah, for that goal. I'd do it all. If I knew I was going to get away with it and regardless of the repercussions
1: later on in life I would do it. Is that mental toughness?
2: <laughs> no.
1: Well, That's know, a subject for another day, I think. <laughs> Yep, we'll be back next week.